welcome to Nordic D&D, the Ariana Saga. Sound effects used in this podcast is brought to you by Facilian Studios, ProSound, and BattleBars.com. This show is R-rated, so everybody be advised. Welcome to Nordic D&D, the Ariana Saga. My name is John Adnason, and welcome to the show. Last session we had session zero where we gave a brief introduction to what kind of show this is and a little bit of the origins of the podcast. I gave you some details about what the show is about, what to expect, and we met the players and heard about their backstories. Now this is the first season and I have pre-released some of these episodes before, so you have heard some of it. But things have changed, my good people. Things are added and things are removed to make it a better experience. So I suggest you follow the entire thing from episode 1. Now, as we did before, we're going to start with some flashbacks before we get to the live games. But before we get to that, we're going to Camp Lore. As mentioned in episode 0 and in the pre-release season, this is camp lore. In every episode there's going to be a segue of the lore, where we're going to learn more and more about Ariana and the world we play in. When you hear this melody, you know camp lore is about to begin. There's an old man sitting by a bonfire in the forest, and soldiers are sitting a little bit off. He's enjoying his peace and quiet by himself. Then one of the soldiers comes up to him and says, Master, master, your son is here to see you. Thank you, soldier. Send him to me. And then the old man starts toiling with the fire to make it burn a little more. He's preparing food. After a few minutes, the soldier comes back with the boy. The grandfather looks at him and says, Ah, my grandson, please come here and sit. I'm preparing food for us to eat. Thank you very much. Sit, sit, sit down. Tell me, boy, how was your trip? It was long, but eventful. Tell me, is all fair and well at home? Yes, my parents bid well. I'm glad to hear it. Now tell me why you have come this long way. Well, Grandfather, I've come actually this long way searching for knowledge. For knowledge? Interesting. What do you want to know, boy? Well, Grandfather, I'm not sure specifically what I want to know. But my mother tells me that you are the wisest elf alive. And if I wanted to be smart and wise about the world, then I should come to you. Did your mother say that? Amusing. She hated so much when I forced her to read and to look for knowledge herself. But she must admit now that it gave her knowledge. And that is why she herself is a wise woman this day, indeed. But you have not come all this way to discuss about your mother, have you, boy? No. You have come here on another errand, 
Now tell me, what is it that you specifically want, my son? Well, I'm not quite sure. Mother always told me that wisdom and knowledge is better than any precious jewel or gold and better than any sharpest blade. But how to get this knowledge, I don't know. So my mother pointed to you. And she has pointed to the fountain of knowledge. You have come to the right place, my boy. Now, I have traveled for eons, searching for the wisdom that I have gathered. Kings, emperors, and lords, and even the wisest wizards come to me seeking for advice. And now you have come. What do you want to do, boy? Well, that's just it, grandfather. I, I, I don't know where to start. Boy, you have already started. You have ventured out into the world seeking and you have come to the right place. It all starts with me. Now what do you want to know? How does one become as wise as you? Boy, you put a smile on my face for that is the best first question ever asked. And in that question is your answer. You become wise by asking questions. So ask away, my boy. Wherever you come in this world, ask questions. But I will advise you to discern between the dumb, the foolish, and the wise, so you know who to ask. And when you know and learn that, my boy, you also learn what kind of books to read and which scribes to follow. Then you will become an extremely wise boy. But it all starts by asking questions. So... If I ask you now, we're sitting here by this bonfire, how will you start seeking this knowledge? By asking questions of the wisest elf alive. <laughs> so it begins, boy. What do you want to know? Well, to be honest, grandfather, I want to know everything, all things. So I, I guess the first question must be, how did it all begin? Well, boy, to tell you that, we'll have to go to the start, in a time before time, called the O-Era. No one knows how long the O-Era was, but it holds all of creation and all the first races. It all began with an empty heaven and the origins of the gods. There was only the four corners of empty space. The four sides had a center called the celestial pool. There was pressure coming from all sides of the pool and space was expanding. So there was pressing from north, south, west and east. Pressing and the pressure became more and more until the celestial pool had so much pressure in it, it exploded. And out of the explosion came light and life, the god Valra was. Then came matter, creation, and physical form, the god Bushka was. And then came fire and destruction, the god Ignitus was. And then came death, time, and shadow. Okay. The god Grimna was. 
Out of the celestial pool came the celestial four, forever in bond. The one cannot exist without the other. This is the beginning of everything. Okay, grandfather. So this is the beginning of space and the gods. But what about what we see now around us? Well, you see, now we have the gods. And the gods started the circle of life. First, Bushka, the god of the earth and matter, formed Ariana with her hands. But it was without life. So the god of life and light, Valra, came and showered her blessings on us. And we lived. But all things must have an end as well. So the god of destruction, Ignitus, corrupted the minds of man to wage war on another. And the god of death, Grimna, created old age and time of decay. So as time will go, people will die. And now we have the circle of life. Birth, life and death. Then creation was completed, and the gods gathered together to make a celestial pact that one cannot survive without the other. It was how they would be immortal for all time. And if the circle of life ever would end in any way, they must restart. For if this pact is broken... It will mean the end of all things, even the gods themselves. This is the celestial pact made by the gods. Then the gods departed to realms of their own making, and not much has been heard of them ever since. But sometimes they whisper. Now we're going to the campaign. Our first couple episodes are going to be a flashback and we start off on an island called Murrow. This is King Vash's empire and we are now gathered at his court where a lot of his advisors are meeting now. Sitting in the councils are the wisest in all the kingdom of Murrow where they are addressing concerns about what's going on in the empire and Garvin Valentine the Magister is stepping out to the floor. Silence, silence, the court is not finished. Order! The king has said to me to take on the next order of business. The king has questions regarding recent events, regarding hollow stitch, and regarding the massacre in Amek. Hadurai, will you now step up to the floor? The one who has summoned rises from the court himself and walks out to the floor. He has a hood on and he pulls it back as he arrives to show himself to be an elven monk. Garvin, the magister, sits down and another one rises, sitting by King Vash's side. Gentlemen. Quiet! Thank you. Hadurai, you and two others of your friends were accused of leveling the town of Hollow Stitch to the ground. 
and the massacre in the mech. You and this Victor and Sovan, who strangely are nowhere to be found. And now, I know that the new mayor of Ronan, this Lisa, has spoken highly of you and explained that the murder going on were not your fault but another. But I cannot stop myself from thinking that there is another theory to this, because there has been no evidence shown to this court whatsoever. No, I believe that the mayor, this Lisa, is the one who's the mastermind behind it all. She has earned the entire estate of the Silversling family. Since the Silversling state is vast in wealth. And it's only after hearing of your valor that you got the high honor of meeting with King of Morrow. And now have earned a sitting in one of his tables. Oh yes, there is much to gain in this theory, much indeed. King Vash will like now to know what you think of this theory, Hadrai. So Hadrai started explaining to King Vash his side of the story. Well, great king, to tell you that, we will have to go back to the beginning. It all started in the town of Ronan to the west. I was looking to make some money and heard the Yampan of Ronan is the best place to start for some mercenary work. So there I went, and to my surprise there were a lot of people there that day, and there was an apparent reason for it. The rich Jack Silversling was there, and offered a great sum of money to do a job for him, and I tell you, every man in the yarn barn wanted a piece of that. So he made a tryout to find the best men for the job. He gave out random numbers which indicated here, where to sit. Here you go. Take this. Here. This. And there I met Victor, a tall elf with unbelievable muscular structure. And Sovan, a younger human lad, or at least I think he was. The kid had skills, magical in nature, but I will get to that later. Sovan did not say much about his past, actually none of us did. That was the only thing we had in common at that point. After all this was done and dusted, Jack sent us on a quest against time against the others. He sent us to a forest to clear out a spider hive living in a tower ruin. The test was to see who was the fastest to finish the job, and we came in second. And in our minds we had already lost. But to our immense luck, the winners made such a half-assed job that time was the only thing they were thinking about. And that did not sit good with Jack. And so we were hired. So Hadarai and his friends passed the test given by Jack Silversling. Now he had the big quest in mind for them. This particular quest was concerning Jack's younger brother, Mike. He had been kidnapped and was held in the Wolven Forest to the north. About halfway in the Wolven Forest, there came a man running right at us. He looked surprised to see us and tried to run from us, but Come we eventually here. caught up with him and managed to interrogate him. Talk, he told us where the bandits camped and that their leader was there. When we later got to that point, we found Mike Silversling and the bandits holding him. We got rid of the bandits but did not find any sign of a leader. They all looked like low-priced bandits. Luckily, Mike was bound and in fine shape. The job was done, or so we thought. The day after, in the town square of Ronan, 
A gnome was screaming for the aid of men to help the kidnapping of children in Hallow's Ditch. And there I saw Jack Silversling listening and holding a flyer. He told me he was longing for adventure and excused himself by saying that his time in the king's army was 20 years in the past, so his fighting was not as good as it once was. And I'm not one to ignore a hint, and we agreed to help him once again. When we came to Hollow's Ditch, I noticed it was smaller than I first anticipated. It was located on the site of Mount Nimra. It was well barricaded with high rocky walls around it that was outgrown from the mountain itself. Now only a bridge separated us from the town entrance. Two guards were manning the entrance, and they stopped us from walking through. We told them that we meant them no harm, but wanted to help and aid the kidnapped children. Really? <laughs> they did not let us in. I don't think so. The guards were extremely careful, and it was only after Jack showed them a tag he tore from the flyer he took from the no they let us in. But again, they seemed really paranoid and did take another careful look at us first. But at last we got in. The village from the inside of Hollow Stitch looked poor and not well kept. The air was chilled, and a mist covered the entire ground. You could barely see your own feet. Almost no people were seen in the streets, and the houses were in bad shape. It was clear that the resources of the town were few, but of course one house stood out from all the others, the town hall. It looked the best kept and was the mayor's house in the middle of town. We went there to meet Mayor Leon Henry. He seemed eager to see us. Oh, finally. Tell me you have come to aid our small community. They are taking some of our local children. It is horrible. That evil monstrosity to the east. They worship something evil. Evil, I say. Damn cultists. They are locked behind two gates, which only I have the key. Well, the first gate, at least. And the second has been locked for so long, I don't know who locked it. But it's an old thing, and it can't be that hard to get open. The first gate used to be open, but since I locked it, the kidnapping seemed to have stopped. So I'm sure it's them. There's really nothing else back that way. Only a creepy monastery, deep in the mountain. Oh, please help us. I fear they are sacrificing the children. Will you help us? We will reward you. And, of course, we agreed to aid. That was the reason we were there. But the mayor refused to hand over the key, the paranoia of the town again. He insisted instead that he kept the key and come with us to open the gates. Jack said he would watch over it, and so we agreed. We went back out to the center of the village by a well and saw a large gate on the east side of town. It was right across from where we came into the village from the bridge to the west. Leon Henry took us to the gate that leads deeper into the mountains. He opened the first gate and pouring out came more mist, but thicker. It was clear that it was from here the mist came that covered the grounds of Hollow's Ditch. We walked in and came to a curve that took us north into the mountain. And after walking for a while we came to the second gate. The mist here had now become more like thick fog, and the air that was once chilled was getting hot. It was getting harder to see and breathe as we came up to the second gate. Standing by the second gate, 
there were two gargoyle statues and a human remains on the ground. The gate was locked and we took a look around and found a key on one of the gargoyles and opened the gate. Now the fog became even thicker and the air hotter. And we heard chanting and talking in the distance, so we went stealthily to take another look. We saw acolytes wearing black robes chanting in a circle, and a high priest chanting loud to the god of death, Grimna, calling for the undead to rise and darkness to come. Then the high priest said, The time for another sacrifice is at hand. We bring death to the living and life to the dead. We saw cages, but they were all empty. It seems like we came too late, or at least that's what we thought. For at that moment, the high priest turned around and looked directly at us and said, Ah, the sacrifice is here. Thank you, Maya Leon, for yet another fresh batch of blood to offer to Grimna. <laughs> When we looked back at Mayor Leon Henry, he was gone. And so I looked back at the gate where we came from, and I saw him grinning as he closed the gate behind us. It was a trap. And there were never any children. We were the sacrifice. So the fight of our lives was on. But they had no chance against us. Clearly they had underestimated our strength. So we cut down the acolytes easy. But the high priest was more challenging. He had magic powers. <laughs> and to my surprise, so did our young Sovan. This was the first time we saw it. He drew a magic sword that was engulfed in shadow and cut the high priest in half. And as the blade slid through him, the shadow threw pieces of the priest in upside directions. And I looked at Sovan thinking, what are you? But before I got the chance to ask him, a spirit left the body of the priest and flew over to a lever on the mountainside. He looked at us and said, This is only the beginning. And pulled the lever and disappeared. The mountain seemed to shake and after a few seconds the mountainside opened up and burning hot lava came pouring out, filling the room. We had to run. As the lava came right at us, we came to the gate that Leon Henry had closed behind us. It was locked, but with only a few seconds to think, Victor started bashing the gate. And broke his way through, and we ran. When we came to the first gate, it was locked as well. And of this side of the cave, it was made out of rock. Victor started to hit it again, but to no avail. It was unbreakable. In a panic, we searched in every corner of the cave. And in the last second, Sovan found, on the end of the curve beneath the mist, a hole in the ground. And as the lava was right on us, we jumped. And by the blessing of Valra, the hole took us outside the mountain on the south side. When we came out, we moved away from the hole so that lava coming right behind us did not come over us. So it came out hitting the ground by our side. And when it came in contact with the cold air outside, it hardened up, sealing the lava and the hole. 
We just sat there, gathering our thoughts. We all agreed that Leon Henry, the mayor of Hollow Stitch, had to pay for what he had done. We went to the entrance of the town and the bridge was up. The gulf separating us from the town was too wide and deep to cross another way. And we were a bit beaten up, so we made the decision to go back to Ronan to rest and plan things out. Jack invited us to his home at the Silversling estate, and there we met his wife, Lisa Silversling, and their children. After eating, resting, and cleaning ourselves up, we talked things over. Lisa mentioned something about a crazy drunk always talking about how he escaped Hollow Stitch through the sewer system. He always sits alone, yelling nonsense, and no one takes him seriously. But I'm sure he once said the name Hollow Stitch. The man's name is Lass. We looked at her and said in one tone, Where, where does, does he, he live? live? Lisa told us he lived in a shack just outside of town, to the north. We went to check it out. Jack stayed with his family. He was a bit more beaten up than the rest of us, and not the strongest fighter, to be honest. His age and lack of training had got the better of him. It did not take us long to find Lass's shack. He was home, and when we arrived... We heard him mumbling inside. We knocked on the door and the mumbling stopped. He pretended he was not home. Sovan went to the back so he did not run at a window. I knocked again, nothing. Victor pushed me aside and broke the door in while Sovan snuffed through the window from the back and scared him. So it was not that hard to get information out of him. It is true, I was a prisoner there and I escaped. There is a way underneath the town. First, before you come to the bridge, make a left and go by the rocky side. And about halfway along the rocky side in the middle, there are some rocks easily moved. I'm very weak, so the rocks are nothing to you. They are blocking an underground passage to the well in the middle of town. It was pitch black when I came out, so I don't know how to draw a path for you from the cave to the well. It took me days to find the way out, but then again I crawled my way through in the dark. But you will come to a wooden door, and there are human bones laid around. Don't get too close. When you have arrived, it is guarded by magic. Take this gem and say the words, Omion Nectar. The gem's magic will let you in. We thanked and reminded Lass that we would be back if he lied to us. We went back to Hollow Stitch right after. The bridge was still up when we came back, so we followed Lass's advice, and he was right. There was a pile of much smaller rocks gathered in one area, and underneath a passage underground. So in we went. We had torches, so it was easy to us to find our way, but it was something of a maze. So we came to the door last mentioned, with a pile of bones. We stopped, I pulled the gem out and said, Amian Nectar, and green energy came out of the crystal. But it did not go to the door or open it, but instead to the bones of the dead, and they came alive. It was a trick. So we fought the undead. After we defeated them, we had to find a way to get through the door. 
After standing a few moments, Sofen tried to open the door by nothing but a simple notch. And it did just that. It was never locked, just a trick made by Lass. After walking for some time, we finally came to a watering hole, where the well was right over us, and up we went. It was night time at this hour, so it was quiet, and most villagers were sleeping. For there was light in the mayor's house. The two guards at the front door looked vast asleep. The windows were high, so we did not see inside. We went to the back and found a ladder, and to the roof we went. There was a window there, and we stealthily went in. We heard some voices and took a closer look, and there we saw Leon Henry standing beside two acolytes talking to a female ghost. The Lord is not pleased. The sacrifice was almost full, and our Lord was to rise. Your gods were not to let the strong men in, only the weaker ones. I'm sorry. The gods were given specific orders on who to let in, like they have before. It worked perfectly the other times. They made a mistake. They failed. But they are dealt with. What about High Priest Amrion? His spirit lives. It clings to the artifact. And it will find a host. So the final sacrifice can be completed. What must I do? You have served us well. And this town a cradle for the undead. Your task is done and the town has outgrown its purpose. Does that mean you'll uphold the deal? Is it time? The contract is completed. The ghost stretches out her hands to the two acolytes. Their eyes glow green, and their chanting became louder, and their voice deepened, and they spoke in an unknown language. I looked outside the window and saw all the villagers standing out in front of the mayor's house, like in a trance. I saw one acolyte lift up his hands, making signs in the air, the other standing still, chanting, and then moves closer to the mayor and cuts his throat. You see the shock in his eyes, and then the acolytes cut their own throats. I looked back outside and the villagers fell to the ground. One woman grabs a sharp, rusty shovel and slices her throat and falls to the ground. A larger man takes a sharp stone and cuts his wrists and starts repeatedly slamming the stone in his own face. He falls over, dead. All the villagers are committing suicide under a spell. The ghost speaks. Consider the deal done. And she is gone. There is dead silence. It all happened so fast. We jumped down and it was all over. Victor went to take a closer look at the mayor. Then all of a sudden the mayor rises as an undead wraith. So the fight was on. And it took great toll on us. But we struck the right down. And as it died, a great force of energy exploded out from it, cracking the floor and shaking the foundation of the town. 
We then searched the body, and an amulet was found on him. When we took the amulet, the cracks in the town's foundation got bigger, and the village started to fall apart, and so we ran. And cracks were getting bigger and bigger. Sovan saw that the bridge was up by a wheel. So he yielded for us to go that way, and he cut the lock holding the chain for the bridge, and we ran up the bridge as it was lowering and jumped the final distance, because the bridge was also sinking in the cracks of the broken foundation. We made the jump, and survived Hollow Stitch. We went back to Ronan, to the Silverslinge estate. He invited us to stay in his home. We told him everything that had happened and he was in shock and awe. But he recommended to go to Amek to get the amulet identified by the wizard living there. He insisted we wait so we can get rested and he invited us to get a fine dining the next day. Jack took us the next day to Boar's Meal, the finds of all Ronan. So we sat there, eating, drinking and having fun. Way out of nowhere, there comes this waiter. I saw he had a burned hand. And in a sudden movement, he throws a magic pearl, stone or something. And we fell out of our chairs to the ground, stunned. And as I come to, I hear screaming and panic. I look up and see Jack Silversling, dead, his head nearly decapitated. We were officially above our pay grade. The day after, the town of Ronan was extremely quiet. We were back at the Silversling estate, cheering a mourning widow. Jack's brother was also there, and Jack's father, an old man who has been in his deathbed for some time now, also in mourning. A sad day for the Silverslings. I had a talk with Sovan, who also saw the burned hand of the assassin. He went outside to see if there were anyone who knew anyone with a burned hand in town. None such luck. We did not get any wiser that day. But we made a plan to keep our eyes open and to go to Amek, as Jack had said. Early the next day, Victor and I went to a general store in Dubai, and on our return we saw Sovan running after a hooded man on a horse, and we instantly ran to help him, and we got to the hooded man of the horse. It was Jack's brother, Mike. Why is Sovan running after Mike? And another thing, what is Mike running away from? Well, you have to wait until next episode to figure that out. And just a reminder to tell you that this is actually a D&D game played with my friends. And now I am just recapping what happened because I didn't record it. Hope you enjoyed it. See you next time. Thanks for stopping by. Oh yeah, and one last thing.
if you like cool sound effects like this. Then go to our homepage at nordicdnd.podbean.com or our YouTube channel, where you'll find a link that'll take you to battlebars.com and you'll get a discount on subscriptions. And remember, on whichever platform you're listening, like, subscribe, and leave a comment. <laughs>